0: The public has had a long-held fascination with detectives. Detectives see a side of life the average person is never exposed to. I spent 34 years as a cop. For 25 of those years I was catching killers. That's what I did for a living. I was a homicide detective. I'm no longer just interviewing bad guys. Instead, I'm taking the public into the world in which I operated. The guests I talk to each week have amazing stories from all sides of the law. The interviews are raw and honest, just like the people I talk to some of the content and language might be confronting? That's because no one who comes into contact with crime is left unchanged. Join me now as I take you into this world. Welcome to another episode of I Catch Killers. Anyone who has a passing interest in the world of crime knows that crime in America eclipses what we see in this country. Well, today we're going to explore crime in America from someone who has been covering it for the past 30 years. We're talking to an award-winning journalist, Erin Moriarty, who has covered some of the biggest cases in America. Mass shootings, serial killings, wrongful convictions. Erin has seen it all. Not only is she a lawyer, she also has a degree in behavioural science. And for the past three decades in her role as a CBS news journalist, she's been a reporter on the highly successful 48 Hours television program. She's won multiple Emmy Awards and is the host of the true crime podcast, my life of crime. So we've certainly got a lot to talk about. Aaron Moriarty, welcome to I Catch Killers. I'm very happy to be here. I I think it's. Uh, I, I'm excited too. I, I really am. We look at crime in our country, and uh, what I said in that introduction—that uh, seeing seeing what goes on in America—it sort of eclipses what we've got. It's on uh, a magnitude that we don't uh, don't see, generally speaking. Here in Australia, we have an insatiable appetite for true crime. And what what's your take on it? Is that the same in America?
1: Oh, without question. I, you know, it's interesting that you bring up the differences between Australia and the United States in terms of crime, but that's really true of most countries. Back in 1991, we even uh, decided to take a look at London, we were doing a 48 hours. We did a full hour of crime in New York and crime in London. The cities are almost the identical size. Um, but we had twenty one hundred murders just in New York City that year, and they had two hundred. Right. And so when you had two cities of eight million people, you're wondering what's the differences and of course. I mean, the answer I'm simplifying, but does come down a lot to the access to guns. But, um, it, there has been a growing and growing interest in true crime. And, um, and I think I know where it really started, but to be honest, and, and I know you know this, Gary. Mm-hmm. I mean, our parents were reading murder mysteries. Um, so there's always been an interest in murder mysteries. But now I think there's an interest in the legal system and in uh, capturing criminals um, as well as just the story behind it.
0: I think that's reasonable because people get a, uh, a deeper view of crime in the way it's covered this day and age from before it be the headline on the paper, and that's basically all you've got to see about the crime. Then shows like 48 Hours and other crime shows delve a little bit deeper, and I think All of us have that uh, budding detective in us. All of us want to solve. I think it's human nature. You want to solve mysteries and you're curious about what happens. I also think that uh, it's a world that a lot of people don't get to see and that curiosity comes in there as well.
1: I think it's that. But I also think um, particularly the kinds of crimes that most people focus on um, involve what we would normally say is ordinary people, but either they're doing extraordinary things. You have an ordinary person thinking he or she's going to get away with murder, or you have individuals who are subjected to some terrible crime. Like, as you mentioned, mass shootings. Um, and we're always interested on how people who look and sound and live like ourselves, um, have to deal with, with, I guess, such Grief or um, tragedy.
0: Yeah, there was something that uh, you said in an interview. I was just in in the research preparing for the podcast, and I just read it out because it really resonated with me. And I, I think it's interesting the the amount of crime that you've covered and your perspective on it. But can I, I just read out a quote and then we'll uh, we'll discuss this? So this was in an article. I never focus on the negative or sometimes the evil that we encounter. I always focus on the heroics and. In addition to that, what is interesting, in the worst times of people's lives, whether they are charged with a crime or a victim of crime, it seems to bring out the best of them. Do you want to talk us through that? That's a quote from an article.
1: Uh, and I, I feel very strongly about that. That is the only way I've been able to do it for as long as I have. I think that really starts with the fact that I'm a lawyer and I often look at these cases from a legal perspective, but, um, but when I focus on a story, I either look for some very interesting legal issue that we haven't seen before, or as I've mentioned in the past, um, you know, I did a story in Green Bay, Wisconsin, a, a really small town, but they had these, this very, um, I would say, a progressive detective unit in the county police. And there was a young woman who disappeared and then was found dead in a uh, field. And she was having difficulties with her boyfriend and her boyfriend was a perfect suspect, a perfect suspect. They had fought. Um, She had sent him angry texts. He had told his mother he wanted to be out of the relationship get this scary there was blood found outside her blood found outside his house and (laughs) so he was arrested but he wasn't charged because these two investigators were as i said progressive and they noticed he was wearing a fitbit and he also had a progressive gps on his car and there wasn't the movement. He could not have taken the body there. So even though everything in their their gut said, oh, this guy probably did it, they held off. And you know what? It was a drifter. Yeah. It was a drifter who he had been taking her home and he killed her right outside her front door, basically, which explained the blood out there, and then drove her body three miles away. Um, and there's a fascinating story of how they even tracked him down. But I wanted to do that story because these two detectives did not take the easy way out. Their instincts when they saw that Fitbit, there's something we don't know here. And and then I heard later on, after we aired that hour, that there were other departments looking at that and wanting to know more about the Google dashboard, the Fitbit, the GPS on Progressive, uh, you know, the insurance Progressive Company GPS that they put on cars. And so that's what I like to focus on.
0: Yeah, that, that's fascinating. I, I spent like 34 years in the police and 25 of those years I was in homicide. So I've been there, done that and, and seen those type of investigations. And and the way you describe that, you know, I'm getting goosebumps from a detective's point of view. Okay, well, that's certainly worth looking at. But I've had situations like that. And we're going to talk later on about wrongful convictions because I'm very interested in that. But There was a case I was working on that uh, an elderly lady was murdered in her home and uh, sexually assaulted. And we had a very good suspect. I won't go into all the details, but it was a person that was seen running from the scene a person who had ingratiated himself into the community with uh, the, the elderly, attended the same church as the uh, victim, uh, which was a small insular group. So there was a link to the victim. He was seen running away from the scene. When we interviewed him, he said, oh, my dog got off the leash and he just came up with this bizarre story that did not make sense. He had a history of sexually assaulting elderly ladies and, for all intents and purposes, he was our man. This was in the very early days of DNA, and myself and my partner, we've got this. Okay, what's this DNA stuff? We know who the suspect is. We got uh, got DNA because there was semen left at the scene. The DNA report came back and said, no, it's not him. We're looking at this piece of paper. This yeah, you know, the results of the DNA tests. Going, that can't be right. But it was right, and we eventually caught the right right person, and this person that we had as a suspect was just a bizarre human being and uh, all sorts of uh, things that he's been in, involved in, but he wasn't good for the murder. What, but, Gary,
1: you- what if there hadn't been DNA? Aaron, that's what's so interesting about
0: this. Aaron, that's and that's, I think, and it was early in my career, that helped me realize that you've got to be so careful. Because if I, I would have stated my life on the fact, this is a person guilty. If he was convicted, I'd think we had a righteous conviction. The story that you just talked about with the GPS and all the technology that come into play, it just made, as you were saying that and thinking about the story I just relayed, it makes me think how many people could have spent time in jail. Go back 50 years, go back 60 years before all this technology came into play based on the circumstantial evidence. It's, it's quite frightening, isn't it?
1: Well, Gary, that's exactly what I asked these detectives. I said, all right, 20 years ago, before we had any kind of this forensic technology would his name was David. Would David have been arrested and charged? And they said yes. And I said, Is it likely he would have been convicted? And they both just sat there and they said yes, <laughs> because he was the perfect suspect. And so that to me, I mean, see, I I really was looking forward to uh, talking with you because I, I wonder if sometimes we have a different perspective for two reasons one of course um you know the australian law is more common law based uh, you know it's the british law
0: yeah very while much while so. the
1: american system of justice focuses more on the defendant and defendants rights and so as a lawyer i often look at the case and i'm saying ah, are we really sure this guy did it even if he's been charged and there's a lot of evidence while well, i think a uh An investigator is looking, this is the guy and I've got to build up the evidence to prove it. I believe it's him and I need to build up the evidence to show it's him.
0: There's that that group think and tunnel vision that you you see on on investigations and and the pressure comes with the media coverage, the victim's family, everything, high profile cases and you've got to be careful. And I I was fortunate enough to be mentored by people that I I respected that had integrity, had a a good moral compass. And they always cautioned that, uh, yeah, okay, group think, but let's think outside the square a little bit. And some very good detectives taught me that uh, even if you are think, okay, we've got enough to charge this person, we've got enough to put this person before court, let's just... Try and dissect what we've got and see if we can break it down before we get to that point. Like, see if there's a weakness in, in the case and see if we're, we're missing something. But uh, the stakes are high, aren't they, when you, you're talking about taking away someone's someone's liberty. And I, I know in the US, like the death penalty still in play and people on death row, you got to make sure you get it right.
1: Well, and I mean, there's no question, uh, but I think in some ways life without parole is is equally as bad. And I one of the things and, you know, we can talk about wrongful convictions uh, a little later. But one of the things when I talk about in the early 1990s, when we looked at this high murder rate in New York, It wasn't just New York, it was also St. Louis and Los Angeles. And there was a real, real push to make arrests on on murders. And if you happen to be poor and you didn't have the money for an attorney and you happen to live in the wrong neighborhood, usually primarily a black neighborhood. um, Then, you know, there was just a rush to get these these individuals charged, arrested and sent away and move on to the next. It was almost assembly line. And I see it over and over again, but it's usually involving it it. The crimes happened in the late 80s and 90s when the murder rate was really high. And these are usually people, the the defendants are usually people of color without any kind of resources. And so one of the things I was going to say to to you, Gary, I think one of the reasons in the United States why crime really the interest in true crime really just grew was in the 1990s when OJ Simpson, I yeah. uh, went on trial yeah. Yeah, that's because right. that was really one of the first cases. I mean, everybody in this country, I'm exaggerating, but a lot of people in this country would watch that daily, you know, gavel to gavel coverage. And uh, this involved a guy that we all thought we knew because he did so many commercials and he had played football, American football. And all of a sudden he's charged with a crime, you know, that, no, there's no way this individual could do it. And he runs away at some point, and there's a car chase. It was the most entertaining television ever. We were watching the
0: car chase live over here. Exactly, exactly.
1: And I think that was, for two reasons, that was the beginning of a real hunger for this kind of story, but also that was one of the first times DNA was used in a high-profile case. And after that, we started seeing, oh, so DNA shows this guy didn't do it, but he's been in for 30 years. Um, Why did that happen? Because maybe coerced confession or so all of a sudden we're realizing, oh, we thought the system works so well. We thought, jurors, you know, 12 people, you know, your peers can can really cut through and see whether you're innocent or guilty. All of a sudden, that's not true. So now we have all these new stories. That's that's really where when I started. I had all these great stories no one else really wanted to cover because they were all from a legal point of view, and they were fascinating stories.
0: Yeah, I I can understand your your interest in uh, exploring that. The comment, uh, a comment that you made about seeing the good in people. People often say say to me about homicide: How did you last so long? How didn't? Why didn't it wear you down? But uh, I like your comments there. That you know, at the worst time in the people's lives, the dignity. I, I'm talking, say, the victims' families here. The dignity they display and the humanity and the kindness. Uh, it, it nourishes me. That's uh, you've you've got to find when you're looking at the dark world. You've got to find some brightness in there. And those, those quotes that I read out, it. it tells me that's what you saw in these situations?
1: Well, particularly in the victims are the ones I think I connect to the most in all of these cases, because for two, you really want them to have justice for the person they loved and lost. Um, But you also want to make sure they have justice for the one they loved and lost and not the wrong person being arrested. And so, um, you're kind of driven because you you see what they're going through. Um, I don't know about you, but sometimes I mean, I'm a parent. Mm. And when I see parents who have lost kids, I don't know how they get up in the morning. And that energizes me more. I know that you you yeah. cared very deeply about a, a story I read. I did my research about you, too, Gary. Yeah. And um, and I know that um, when a young three year old disappeared, that became an important case to you. And I think that's also what keeps you and I interested in this, in the sense that maybe we can. Give them some comfort, you know, um, not only will there's two ways I think we help victims. Sometimes they have people in their family going, you know, you got to move on. You you can't constantly talk about this. And then you get you and me. We're really interested and we're not saying, oh, well, when I lost, we're saying, tell me more. Tell me more. Um, And I think that's it. And then when I have wrongful, wrongfully convicted defendants, they may not get out. I mean, I'm I'm not a judge. I'm not I'm not a practicing lawyer, so I can't get them out. But the fact that I'm listening to their story and I'm putting it on national television and I'm letting other people have doubts about their guilt that's giving them something as well.
0: Uh, it, it, most definitely. I think the cruelest thing for victims where they think their loved one's been forgotten and uh, I've heard politicians say to victims' families that uh, oh, it's time you move on. <laughs> and like that's, yeah, you, you don't say that to a victim's family. Like, yeah, build a bridge, get over it. Yeah, it was a historical murder, but three children that were murdered uh, all known to each other, three Aboriginal children, and the investigation was botched from the start for a whole range of reasons, and racism did play a part in that. But uh, where a politician told the family members at a meeting you know, 20 years down the track, it's time you move on, but people don't uh, don't move on. But I think the important thing that you bring to a family, knowing that someone cares, and sometimes I can't get justice for the families, but they know you actually care, and that's that's an important thing too
1: or when we for many years since early 2011 we started covering the victims of the person who is known as the Long Island serial killer um you know there was a suspect arrested this year Rex Eurman. and early on none of the other shows wanted to cover it because the victims as you and I both know often the victims of serial killers are Sex workers or, um, you know, women who are not quite on, you know, they're not working regular jobs. That's how they are vulnerable. They might use, uh, burner phones and they don't tell their families what they're doing. And so it's easy for them to disappear. Um, and we decided we were just going to cover that story from their perspective. And I actually was surprised with how. Wonderful, isn't that terrible to say? But they they just had the most wonderful families, and um and they made these victims come alive in ways that we just had not done. And I was so glad we did that because. Then, of course, then you're driven to get justice and you're driven to keep doing this story because in that case, we had a very dysfunctional police department that was in charge of the investigation. And now all of a sudden there's a defendant and a suspect and let's I hope he did it uh, because I'd love to see that that case resolved. Some, but, someone um, called We'll camp. see.
0: Yeah. A troubled young woman. Let's uh, let's just talk about you for a sec. First of all, you're a qualified lawyer. You've uh, also did a degree in behavioural science, and you've been working in uh, a, a journalism for over over three decades. What's your what got you there? What took you to journalism in the first place? Were you going to be a lawyer, or did you just lose your way, or what what happened?
1: No, no, no. It's a really it's a stupid reason. Um, I always wanted to practice law. Okay. Um, I grew up, my father was a lawyer and then a judge. And, um, I was, I always joke I was his only son. We had four <laughs> daughters and I was the only one who wanted to go to law school. And, um, and I had watched Perry Mason growing up.
0: He's <laughs> um, good motivation,
1: you know, and. Um, I thought, wow, you know, of course, I, Perry Mason gave you the idea that as soon as you put someone on the stand, they'll go, yes, I did it. <laughs> but anyway, I wanted to practice law. I did not want to practice criminal law. I wanted to be a litigator and I wanted to do civil law. Um, and so I went to law school and I started with a law firm. And I was the only woman because as obviously if I've been doing journalism for a while, it was a while ago since I went to law school. And I grew up in the Midwest, the very center of the United States, and it was not progressive for female lawyers. So I had this harebrained idea. I was practicing law, actually, that I was going to audition for a television show. I did not have a degree in journalism, and um, I thought that if I went on television for a year. People would, why did I think this? But they would look at me. Um, I was going to anchor a show and tell stories. And I was going to do some legal stories. And I thought people then would look at me as a lawyer and I would get work. Um <laughs> what good, i didn't good, realize good plan, good plan. You know, yeah you know, a little harebrained but <laughs> i was in my 20s in my defense i was in my 20s <laughs> and um and so i thought what a great idea but what i didn't expect was um how much i would love storytelling and initially um you know, I didn't leave the law firm right away, but when I did, there were, you know, mostly males um, who were upset with me because they thought I wanted a more glamorous life than practicing law. And maybe there was some truth to that. But I really think what I liked was the storytelling. And I have learned over the years of what kept me in this. Because every once in a while, I'd sit through a trial and and feel a pang that I was not practicing law, that I was not the litigator in that case. But I think what um it kept me going with that is I felt that I could accomplish more as a journalist um than I could as a lawyer in in making a difference in people's lives, in informing jurors. Um, I honestly think, that our job, our secondary job beyond entertaining uh, listeners and viewers, um, we're training people to be better jurors. They will go yeah. in the courtroom and they will say, really? I, is that all the evidence you have? Um, you know, sometimes that's not good because sometimes they see these television shows where a murder is resolved in an hour, you know, and they fingerprint comes right up and it's that guy and they think technology should be there. So they're tough on the prosecutor. But I think if if a juror is going to be tough on a prosecutor, that's who that juror should be tough on rather than the defense. If we really believe in innocent until proven guilty. Um, And and I don't really think we do believe that, but I, do think that's yours. My job is to let people know that the system doesn't always work.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's most important. A couple of things in, in what you said there too. And I, I found this after leaving the police and I left in controversial circumstances. If you, I know, I
1: read about uh, that too.
0: <laughs> and I, I, I'm not ashamed in any way of what I did. So, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm not going to um, fall on my sword and say I shouldn't do it. I recorded a conversation on, on my phone in a house that had listening devices. Wow. But anyway, well, but not it, one that was on the search warrant. Not on the search warrant, but we have legislation <laughs> over here. This is, uh, this, I want you on here talking about wrongful convictions. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> as you can see, I've got over it. <sighs> but since I've left the police... All jokes aside, like I was taken away. I was in the thick of homicide. I'd been the yeah you know, the week that I left the police or, or when my career came to a, an end, I'd been called out to police officers have been shot, been called to a murder. I was living the life of a homicide detective. That was my passion. And that was taken away. And I'm thinking, well, how can, how can I make a difference now? So I dusted myself off. But what I've found, and, and getting back to the point that you made, as distinct from being a lawyer or working in journalism... What I'm doing now, I think I, I, I'm perhaps making a bigger impact on crime than I could have ever because I'm opening people's eyes up to crime is not all black and white. There's 360-degree view of it. We get a lot of the, you know, the people I used to lock up back here on the podcast, and it's interesting hearing their perspective. So I, I do get what you're saying and, and educating people on, on crime. I think gone are the days where if a police officer in the witness box and says this – well, you just accept that as fact. We do need uh, police to be scrutinised. There's some very good police, but there's some very bad police as well. So, yeah, I, I like what you your take on it, what you're doing there in the media, and it is, is an important role.
1: I, I, I really think we do make a difference. I can give you an example. Um, back in 2005, I did a wrongful conviction of a now I know. I, I never know in the beginning. You know, somebody will tell us they're innocent and there'll be evidence that indicates maybe they're innocent. But there was a young man who was uh, charged and uh, convicted of murdering his parents. He was the only one left alive in the home where two of them were bludgeoned and stabbed to death. Um, and when when the police that very day took him out, they were convinced he did it because he was the only one left alive and he would inherit everything. Of course, if they had spent a couple more days looking, they would have realized he didn't inherit anything till he was 25 and he's only 17 at this point. And so that really didn't make sense. But anyway, so um, he, though, they kept after him. He was in a room with them and they kept saying, we know you did, it. we know. And, and so then they play a joke on him. (laughs) They say, we just called the hospital and your dad came out of his coma because he did linger for a little bit. And he said, you're the one who did it. And so Marty said, could I have done it? Oh, my God, my dad wouldn't lie. I mean, could I have? Well, it was over then, as you can imagine. So when I first did the story, viewers said to me, they'd write me and they'd go, no way. He's guilty, guilty, because you could never get me to admit something I didn't do. But then ten years later, I, after doing stories that involved coerced confessions, and I should point out, Marty, his name's Marty Tankliff, did walk out of prison. His parents uh, were likely killed by hitmen uh, hired by his dad's business partner, but that okay. may. Yes, so um, it was a great story. But uh, 10 years later, I do a story with a young woman who is um, cognitively uh, challenged um, and she's accused of killing a baby. She's a daycare worker. and She's accused of hitting the baby. She had no history of any kind of anger. Um, and this child actually had a previous head injury, but uh, they put her in a in a room nine hours uh, with these two cops, you know, how, oh, how the, her yeah. back is, you yeah. you know what oh, they no. do. And they use the read technique, yeah. you know, good cop and bad cop. And first say, oh, don't don't worry. We just want to know the truth. We just want to know the truth. And then every little bit she gives them. But in the end, we have that whole. Luckily, they they uh, taped it. And so I showed it to viewers and we had experts look at it. And then people were saying, oh, my God. Melissa was coerced into saying that. And that was just I mean, 10 years is 10 years, but all of a sudden I I could tell there was a difference in people listening and watching and they, they had learned something and they had questions about whether all confessions are truly confessions.
0: Yeah, those confessions, and I, I watch with interest the type that come out in America. We've got safeguards that have been put in place and I think it probably goes back about 20 years, again, following English law, but time in custody and yeah, we have a lot of rules rules in place. In America, is my understanding, and, and you said they played a joke that, uh, oh, the father's woken up and said it is you. Over here, we've got, it's very strict, you can't make an untrue representation. So I can't say, Erin, we know it was you that broke into the house because we've got your fingerprints in there. And you go, oh, you're you're right, you've got me. And I go, well, we didn't even actually have your fingerprints. We can't make that untrue representation. That's not necessarily the case in America. You, you can sort of, oh, you get more. Oh,
1: you absolutely can. I mean, it's the Supreme Court even, if there was a case that went all the way up the Supreme Court. Yes. And there's a real push to stop that, particularly when you're, uh, dealing with defendants who are children or who have any kind of cognitive issues. Uh, cause that's, that is when it's likely to happen um there was a case luckily the judge saw it and so the the defendant never actually went to prison although he did go to jail he was pre-trial detained but um he had a history of alcohol and he would have blackouts and so um he was living in an apartment and the woman next door was killed and the police said we know it's you. We have your blood and your fingerprints and, and he goes they said you must have blacked out and he said, Then I did it.
0: Yeah, so and
1: but he didn't do it. Um they didn't have any of that. And luckily in that case, the judge threw it out. But it is legal in the United States to do that.
0: Yeah, and I, I find that I, I really cause I know how much pressure you can apply on someone in an interview room. You you shut those doors and you've you've got, you know, good cop, bad cop, whatever you want, you can apply pressure and Sadly, it's the people that you know, are probably disadvantaged for a thousand different reasons are the ones that are vulnerable to that type of thing. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I can see why there would be wrongful convictions, because if you leave someone in a room long enough with uh, people, you can virtually get them to uh, yeah, confess to anything. You've always got to be careful if you get a confession. I've had confessions to murders and then we we double check and go, oh, well, no, <laughs> the person actually didn't do it. So, yeah, I, I can see how many problems that would exist with that coercive uh, confession.
1: Well, yes, because like in the case of Marty look, the one I told you where he, he's in there and they're saying your dad um, said you did it. Well, you know, um, you know, the kind of problem with that was they did that in a day. And so then when another suspect came up, including his dad's business partner, what can the officers do? They're in their own bind that they created, because if they say, oh, we better look at this guy, then they have to admit there was something wrong with that confession they took. Yeah. So unfortunately, this was Suffolk County Police Department in New York, and they decided they'd just stick with Marty. Um, So Marty spent 17 years in prison. Um for something that at least a court of appeals says the evidence doesn't exist. And, you know, even that it went that far, because here's another problem. He he makes this quote unquote confession. It doesn't match the evidence at the scene. That should have been a huge red light to these detectives.
0: The detectives do have a have a responsibility, and yeah, we're, we're focusing on ones that have made mistakes. But I, I've I've seen some good detectives, as I'm sure you have, and, and seen some bad ones. That uh, yeah. Uh, don't really, I? I think you've got to have that moral compass. So I say a moral compass, and people go, oh, "Who's this bloke? Ex cop? Blah blah blah." You really have, because you 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 have got a lot of power as a uh, as a detective when you've got people uh, people in an interview room, and you've got to be careful with it. Where all our confessions now have to be recorded, so it's got to be uh, recorded That's if there's a confession, and that changed the landscape. Old school policing thought. The sky's going to fall. What we've got, we, we're not allowed to speak to them off camera. So any confession now in this, this, um, in our jurisdiction is it's got to be recorded on uh, on video. And I think that's fairer. The world hasn't changed. We're still locking up the bad guys where where need need be, but it's those safeguards that are in place. So
1: most of the time, I mean, look. We do focus on the stories that are interesting. And so sometimes they're going to show where the investigation went off the rails. But the truth is, all these cases we don't hear about are ones that operated the way they should, you know, good investigative uh, work. Um, I mean, one of the stories I featured in this podcast, I do. Um, I did it because both the prosecutor and the cops in this case knew who had killed this woman, young woman, and they were determined to to find the evidence. You know, they there were twins who had decided to commit the perfect murder. And so they watched a number of crime shows. So they knew what to do. They would only hit the victim once. So there was no blood spatter. They wore plastic so they wouldn't leave any DNA. But in the end, it was just really good police work and um noticing which of these twins might be the weaker and um, and getting him to finally turn on his brother. And not only did he turn on his brother, but he actually on video describes exactly how they killed her. And um, I thought that was a good case because it was really good police patient and Accurate police
0: work. Okay, that's interesting. Well, if they if they learnt how to commit a crime watching watching TV, I always say I don't want to give people tips, but the hardest murders to solve is where it's one person who hasn't told anyone. That's if if I know there's more than one offender in there, you're always in with a chance. If someone's committed a murder and they say nothing, they're the hardest ones to, hardest ones to prove. Difficult. Uh, no, I won't tell because I'll give people ideas. I was going to say. I know
1: we have to be careful yeah. at times. There's one method um, that has actually come up a couple of times in cases, and um, I actually had a doctor say, "Look, I will talk to you about this." particular method, but yeah. I'm not going to show how anyone could do it because <laughs> it's just so easy. It could give people ideas. And I have to be honest, I just recently ran into a case, similar case. So um, it's an effective way to kill someone and hard to detect by medical examiners. So we never went into great detail.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll for, <laughs> the, for the safety of the public, we're not going to take this in yeah. any further. Thanks for listening to this episode. My name is Manny Karoudis and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts, and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts. We'll get back into the interview shortly. I wanted to take a moment to talk about Crimex Plus. Crimex Plus subscribers get access to this podcast early and ad-free. They also get access to a bunch of other great content, The latest podcast is my new series. It's called Breaking Badness. And in it, I take a journey inside a maximum security prison. And trust me, for an ex-cop to go into prison isn't easy. In the series, I sit down with hardened crims, I hear their stories, and discover a whole new way of doing prison in this country. Get early and add free access. Search for Breaking Badness on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts. Okay, let's get back into this episode. Now... I Catch Killers and uh, that's the name of this podcast and uh, my Hello. life of crime your your podcast so we we're going to dig deep into the crime world obviously mass shootings one thing that america you yeah, know we look over here and uh yeah One thing that we identify with is the mass shootings over in America. And every time it happens, we go, what the hell? uh, Is someone going to do something about this? How does it happen time and time again? What's your take on the the situation over there? Because we've had a couple of mass shootings, but on on a scale was the uh, Port Arthur massacre where 35 people were killed. I think that was back in 1996. On the basis of that, the gun control thing, we just took guns off everyone. We had a gun buyback scheme, people would be bringing their guns into the police station, we'd be paying them to get guns off the street. Really changed the changed the landscape and I think saved a lot of people debt down the track. In America, it's just one thing after another. What's your, what's your take?
1: Well, I, that's a very, very difficult one, um, no question. Um, When you talked earlier about how sometimes politicians will say you've got to move on, um, a very common thing you'll hear right after a terrible mass shooting in the United States is it's not time for politics, it's time for prayers. I don't think that helps the victims. Um, I don't quite understand as someone, I mean, sometimes I feel that um, unless you've been on the scene of one of these, you can't really even when we show the pictures on TV, you really can't comprehend how awful they are. Um, I don't quite understand why. You know, we have we have people who can obtain magazines that contain more ammunition than the cops are allowed to carry. Um, <laughs> we have uh, these guns that are have no use for hunting, but can quickly kill people in a very, very short, uh, brutal period of time. And it's it's astounding to me after particularly the school shootings, there was one um, in Connecticut uh, where I could not cover it. It's the first story I could I did one day and I could not do any more. Um, I was crying through interviews, and it was unprofessional.
0: But I could not imagine which one was that. Aaron, Newtown, Newtown. Right. Okay. Is that Sandy Hook?
1: Yeah, Sandy Hook. Same. Yeah, Sandy Hook or Newtown, and that was where where it was a young man who then, you know, he kills his mother first, and then he kills these children who were all just little, little children, and their parents who have to live with the fact, you know, they couldn't protect their kids. And and then you had that awful uh, radio um, Jones, who would then say it was all made up. They're they're actors. None of this really happened. So that added pain. But I honestly thought when that happened, that we would as a country realize that, you know, nobody I at least I certainly would not want to take people's guns away. But I think there are ways that you can make it more difficult for somebody who who is really suicidal. As you know, most of these cases, Gary, they are and they just don't want to go alone. They want to take people with them there. It's usually individuals who have mental illness. It's often young men. Um, It's it's rare for uh, young women to do it. And yet we just we just don't seem willing. I mean, I know this country and it was it was founded on people came to the United States because they wanted rights. They wanted land. They did not want a government telling them uh, and ruling every aspect of their lives. And that is the basis. That's what this country was started. And I think there's still so much of that um in this country. But it just unless you've and I've I did do Columbine and and then I started one. on Sandy Hook, Newtown, and I could not continue. I just, um, I couldn't do it.
0: The limit of what you can absorb. I, I can't yeah. even, I, I can't, and I, I've, I've seen horrific crime scenes, but I can't comprehend something on that magnitude and you know when, when it, it's children involved like that too it must just be heart heartbreaking but yeah I I lost faith in the system over there changing something just to stop these situations happening after that because I thought if that doesn't uh, change things nothing nothing will and uh,
1: well there have been parkland there have been I I don't know what it will take um the idea that you can't go to a Fourth of July parade without worrying about somebody deciding to, you know, just shoot indiscriminately. And I don't understand that at all. Um, You know, it would be much harder to have these mass killings if you just didn't have these guns that are um so easily used, um, it let off so many shots in such a short period of time. They're, they're,
0: I, I did tactical policing. They're assault rifles. They're assault rifles Damn. for a reason because, you know, you can just let off round after round. And uh, I, I I can't see the justification yeah, right to bare arms. That was born back a, a long long time ago. I, I think it's changed a little bit. What if the guns get even better? You know do uh, something that can shoot a thousand like you, you see on the gunships in the in the military do we allow people to have those? like it's uh,
1: Well, yeah. and now you can make your own guns. Yeah. Now that you can actually create um, guns at home, basically if you have the right equipment that don't have any serial numbers, I mean, those it's very worrisome. Um, And I think with how divided this country is and, you know, this is a very, you know, I mean, this is actually a world issue where, you know, I think people are really divided about what they want their future to be. I think it's just scary to have people who might be really unhappy and have some mental illness. Have access to a very powerful weapon.
0: Well, you, you touch on something there with the with the mental illness. If if that factors in, if they've got access to firearms, that's when it, you get the situation like this. Otherwise, it might be one person or whatever before the authorities can step in. But it's quite uh, quite sad. Aaron, we might uh, take a break now, just a short break, and when we come back for uh, part two, we're going to keep digging deep into uh, your world, (laughs) which is fascinating. I reckon I could speak to you for hours. But we'll come back and we're going to talk about a couple of other cases that you worked and uh, I want to get your thoughts on the role of the media and policing and all sorts of things. So let's just take a short break and we'll be back for part two. Perfect.